As we approach the end of the year, Europe is faced with a second wave of coronavirus, with many states going back into lockdown. The situation seems to reflect what happened in March, when COVID-19 first appeared in Europe, and governments took drastic measures to keep their healthcare systems running. However, some things have changed since the first wave, among them the readiness of healthcare systems and industry. Welcome to Metecon Air, I'm Gianluca Painetti, and uh, today we will talk about this and about the new challenges that this second wave brings along with Metec Europe's Director for International Affairs, Jesus Rueda Rodriguez. Welcome back, Jesus. Thank you, Gianluca. So, Jesus, I guess we can start with the first question and the most important question. What has changed since March? What is different in this second wave? Well, there is a number of things that are having a big impact on the second wave that are different from the first one. Um, one of the things that we are seeing is the fact that the, the profile of the people getting infected is a little bit different. The first wave was very uh, focused on the elderly population, in particular nursing homes and so on. These are now much better prepared, and so we see a lot less cases there and a lot more within the younger population. So we're actually seeing a much higher caseload in some cases uh, as compared to the first wave. And we are actually seeing that it's not just the nursing homes, but the healthcare systems overall are better prepared for this. I mean, it's been now 10 months since um, COVID-19 emerged as a global pandemic. And we have been learning a lot about the virus, the disease, how it propagates and, and how to treat it effectively. And so we have much better treatment protocols. Um, it's much more likely that you will get uh, adequate treatment when you get to a hospital. There is a lot more information about what works and doesn't work um, for handling patients. And, for example, we need to put a lot less people um, in ventilation than we did during the first wave. So all of these things really uh, point towards a better management of cases and, and a better preparation of the health system overall. From the point of view of industry, the situation is also somewhat different. Uh, March, April, that, that was a crisis time. Um, everybody was scrambling to increase production of the key, um, of the key technologies that were going to be needed to combat the virus. That included everything from protective equipment to ventilators. We were developing diagnostic tests because we didn't have any. By this point, we have really reliable diagnostic tests. Those are available and available in, in substantial amounts. We have hospitals that are equipped extensively with ventilators, and we have some in stock in case they are needed. And there is a continuous supply of protective equipment. Now, the peaks in, in the second wave do put a stress on the system, and it's not necessarily trivial to deal with the demands. but by and large, we are not seeing the, the, the big shortfalls and shortages that we saw during the first wave. So it's, it's a situation where we can see that both the system, the healthcare system, and the medtech industry are much better prepared this time around to deal with the pandemic. And in, in terms of, of preparedness and of reaction, is the focus of the industry still on uh, what we can call a deployment of technologies, or has that changed uh, in the second wave? Um, deployment of technologies is still important, and uh, we're still developing new technologies to handle the this, this, this second wave. Um, in particular, in the diagnostics industry, we are now 
looking at the availability and deployment of um, rapid antigen tests that can provide good results, in, in some cases uh, equivalent to those of the PCRs, but under a fraction of the time, um, though the, the performance is not always quite as good as that for the PCR test, being able to have a result within a half hour is, is sometimes very valuable. So there are new technologies that are being developed and deployed as we speak. But it actually goes beyond that because what we see now uh, in hospitals and ICUs is not so much a shortage of equipment. Um, equipment is available, at least in Europe. But we do see um, problems with the um, availability of trained nursing staff and trained ICU staff. So what we're seeing is industry stepping up and taking on a much bigger role in the training of healthcare professionals to be able to handle the pandemic and manage the ICUs and really build up the whole uh, infrastructure to continue the effort. Because it has to be said, I mean, there's been a lot of um, exhaustion and turnover in the, in, the, in the hospital staff throughout the year. And that's something that's really a challenge for all healthcare systems to deal with. And I guess also what we saw in, in March was this, uh, this kind of coordinated and cooperative reaction that, was, that had to be built almost from, from scratch uh, around Europe and in the European Union. How is that working now? What are some of the initiatives? Uh, what's the difference in that also in the cooperation uh, compared to March? Yeah, that is actually one of the big crucial differences that allow us to be prepared. I think that there are um, four or five key cooperation initiatives that are, that are essential. Um, at this stage, uh, the European Commission has uh, an ongoing um, mechanism to monitor any shortages that occur in Europe when it comes to medical technologies and an ongoing dialogue with industry. And that makes a huge difference because it allows us to be ahead of the game if problems are starting to arise rather than having to deal with the crisis. Um, but beyond that, we are seeing at the global level um, two very important initiatives starting to take shape. There's the ACTA-A initiative that is um, done in cooperation with WHO, the Global Fund, FIND, and um, the World Bank initiative in order to um, develop and deploy diagnostic tests across the world. The goal is to be able to deploy some 500 million diagnostic tests over the course of the next few months, so as to be able to contain the pandemic, not just in Europe, but across the world. And it's very interesting to see how the know-how and the experience from industry comes together to do that. Similarly, there is another project, um, there's a respiratory alliance that has also been launched just um, earlier this month in November under the auspices of the World Health Organization together with the Global Medical Technology Alliance in order to really be able to address the problems that we're seeing in respiratory care around the world. So that includes the actual respirators themselves and ventilation systems, but also looking at uh, oxygen supply systems and monitoring systems to make sure that patients have these available wherever they are um, especially in some of the developing countries, it's a challenge to have a continuous oxygen supply. And so there are new technologies being developed and deployed to enable that to happen. Now, that's the cooperation on a worldwide level. There's a very ambitious projects with substantial um, budgets and commitments uh, that drive them. And, and they are indeed some, some really high-level engagement. Um, 
at the European level, we also have top-level engagement at the political level from the Commission, and we expect to see a, a number of measures coming together in a package um, which will really be pushing forward cooperation at multiple levels. So it will include better coordination from the European Centers of Disease Control that will be given additional remit and powers to, to, to continue its monitoring and assessment of the situations regarding the pandemic. Also, um, being revised are, are the scope and powers of the medicines agency so that it can address some of the questions regarding medicine shortages that we have seen, but also potentially some other uh, technology questions. And we are seeing also coordination at the level of procurement, establishment of um, different kinds of stockpiles and how those are going to be built up and used. Uh, the use of emergency funds under the rescue program is also much more established and, and, and well set up. So we are basically seeing that now um, we have had experience with all of the aspects of building up a response to the pandemic, be it at the level of treatment in the hospitals, be it at the level of procurement, be it at the level of resolving some of the logistical challenges to get you know, uh, goods from uh, China or wherever else may be produced all the way to Europe on time. All of these things we have dealt with already once under a crisis situation, and so we're much more ready to do so again now during the second wave. From what you say, I can gather that uh, we are better prepared, so both as industry and healthcare systems, and that there are more coordination and cooperation initiatives that now allow us to share uh, what we have learned, not only in Europe, but globally from, from the first wave of coronavirus. But there are things that are, as you said before, uh, putting stress on, on the systems themselves because there is a difference between March and now in the case count, for example, and also in, let's say, the motivation that people, systems, government have in continuing the fight against this pandemic. No, what is what has been called the, this COVID-19 fatigue. So how, how does that fit uh, into the overall picture? That, that is certainly a concern. I mean, if you look at the situation in Europe, we have been with some kind of form of restriction or another um, for the last 10 months. Um, sometimes the restrictions were a little bit easier. Sometimes, like now, they're coming back down much harder in certain places. So there is a certain COVID fatigue that's setting in. It's also leading to some novel approaches on trying to figure out how to contain this and how to really manage the situation. Um, the case of Slovakia, for example, is interesting, where they decided to simply test the entire population. And so they are running a, a process through which they've already tested the entire population of Slovakia once. Uh, and they're planning to do that again um, in, in the next few days, so that to be so as to be able to have first of all a really good understanding of where the virus is propagating, but also to be able to really contain the cases. We'll see how effective that is, but it's it's clear that people are turning to additional measures and putting in some very serious resources to try to mitigate the situation. Uh, and it is unfortunately um, a case where we're seeing much higher case counts. Uh, especially in some parts of Europe, some of the areas that were not nearly as strongly affected, especially in Eastern Europe, have been hit very hard. Um, also, some other parts of Europe, which previously also had a difficult time, like Spain, are now having a very high 
case count. So it's it's a situation where the second wave is leading to a very high case count, but telling me the death rate is not really going up that much higher, and the occupation of ICU beds is still something that is in line with the first wave. So this really tells us that we're getting better at detecting the virus earlier, detecting the infections quicker, and trying to prevent its spread. Uh, one other thing I would also say is that this is not unexpected. In many pandemics, the second wave is actually a bigger peak than the first wave. It was the case in the 1918 influenza, for example. Uh, and it's, so it's not entirely un, un, unforeseen that the second peak would be higher, but it is, of course, really, really hard to deal with, and it, it does cause a certain degree of fatigue to healthcare systems and to the population at large. I mean, everyone's fed up with this. I can, I can perfectly understand it, but nevertheless, uh, we need to continue um, fighting the pandemic, all of us, because it's not just the efforts that are being done by the healthcare systems or by the industry. It's it's something that everyone needs to do because all it takes is a few people spreading the virus again, uh, and and you can have a, a, a very significant resurgence of the virus in a given population, with, um, which undoes a lot of the work that has been done to try to contain it. So it's something that needs to continue, even though it is indeed. Um, becoming harder and harder to do. Uh, we can see this, especially when it comes to things like measures that are being taken in, in schools and so on. Um, measures are being taken to maintain the schools open, which is a good thing. I mean, kids need to go to school. But it does make things a little bit complicated from the point of view of how do you monitor children? How is the spread of virus going through children? It's not uh, a, a question that has an easy answer. And so compromises are being made because a minimum level of, of normality needs to be maintained within the population. Yeah, and we can say that despite the fact that we have gotten better and, of course, better prepared and, and better coordinating ourselves, respecting the rules, so the, 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 the personal and individual part that we still play in this crisis is still uh, very important. Uh, thank you, Jesus. I, I think this concludes our conversation. Pleasant and informative, as always. And uh, I, I look forward to having you on again on the show and maybe also talking about something different than coronavirus. I look forward to that, Luca. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. And if you want to know more about medical technology, visit our website at metaceurope.org and follow us on social media.